Hello and welcome to the Portal podcast, linking research and practice for social work. I'm your host and my name is Dr. Leslie Deacon. And I'm your other host and I'm Dr. Sarah Lombe. So we hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi guys, welcome back to the Portal podcast. Um, This is about bringing um, academia to practice. So today we've got a new guest to talk through their CAS working paper. So we've got Dr. Donna Peacock here and she her working paper is supporting vulnerable detainees through a student volunteering service. So welcome Donna. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Good to be here. So I'm Donna Peacock. Uh, I'm team leader for the social studies team at University of Sunderland. Um, within the team provision we've got criminology, sociology, health and social care and policing. Um, my research background is around interests in cybercrime and more recently have moved into work that looks at vulnerable people, particularly vulnerable people in contact with the police, um, with concerns around uh, participation. And uh, recently um, I've been doing some work with speech and language and communication needs in the police and custody setting. Excellent. And I'm Dr. Leslie Deacon, who's running these with my colleague, Dr. Sarah Lombe. Hi, everyone. So welcome back. This is great. This is, um, we've recorded a few podcasts now. In fact, just as an interesting point, uh, yesterday it was International Podcasting Day, which I found oh, I out. I didn't realise Yeah. That. So it's about trying to encourage people to access podcasts. So I don't know when this is coming out. It might be next year on <laughs> International Podcasting Day. So hopefully... Um, you're getting something out of these podcasts and enjoying them so what we're going to be talking to Donna about today is you've been this is it's really interesting because this is based on actually a service effectively that you've been set up and are providing so do you want to tell us a little bit just about that about how all this has come about? Um, The scheme initially um, came about because the neighbourhood police officer from Biker Police Station contacted me while our colleague was off on maternity leave, our colleague who normally would deal with policing, Ah, uh, not actually my academic background at all. My background's very much cybercrime, or was, had a bit of a shift in direction as we we can tend to do, um, and said, could you send over some students to do some volunteering as appropriate adults in the police station? And I said, don't know anything about appropriate adults, don't know what they are, really up for students having employability opportunities though. And I just yeah. thought, well, worth looking into it, maybe set the scheme up and just see how things run from there. And it really just sort of escalated, snowballed from there. So I think I went into it very uh, naively, not really understanding what it was or what it entailed. And um, the the provision of appropriate adults has to be actually completely independent from the police. Right. So it wasn't just sending them some volunteers, it was setting up a whole independent organisation and legal yeah. agreements and DBS checking and training and rotors and all of the things that go with running an organisation. So that was back in 2015. It took about a year to get things from the point of having discussions to where we sent the first volunteers into police stations. Um, yeah. We started off with nowhere near enough volunteers we started off with eight we tend to run with around 30 to 40 volunteers now to cover the region Mm -hmm. so chronically understaffed but we just had no idea what we needed Um, and the problem was at that point there actually wasn't anything in the region 
there wasn't yeah. anything being done. I think um, from early discussions that were had with police officers working in the region, um, they had been managing to get appropriate adults um, from the local authority, tended to be social workers, um, support workers, people who were actually working with vulnerable people. And then austerity cuts just meant that anybody who didn't have to actually do something because there was a statutory obligation for that to happen, any of those services were cut. Well, the situation around appropriate adults is that if you're a young person under the 1998 Crime and Disorder Act, the local authority has to provide an appropriate adult for a young person if a a parent or family member can't be there. But for vulnerable adults, nobody's actually responsible for the provision. So it's this funny situation, really, where the police have to get someone under the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, they they have to make sure there's an appropriate adult there, Mm -hmm. but nobody has to actually provide that. So then they can't go ahead with their... That's such a gap, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Donna, I was just going to ask, because you've used a a couple of terms there, can you explain first what an appropriate adult is and then also what you mean by a vulnerable adult? Because I think there may be differences in how social workers understand... Yeah. That term as well. So an appropriate adult, um, and the terms are interesting. I find there's a whole interesting discussion to have about the language yeah. around appropriate adults. An appropriate adult is um, a, a role that was defined by the 1984 um, Police and Criminal Evidence Act. And what an appropriate adult does is they provide support um, with a welfare focus and to support communication needs from the point that somebody comes into contact with the police as a suspect during the time that they're in contact with the police. So Mm. there's a misconception that an appropriate adult is somebody who comes and sits in for the interview. And what they're actually supposed to do is they're supposed to be there from the point when somebody's brought into the police station right through the point where a disposal is made. Couldn't that be hours then? Yeah, yeah. Could be up to 24 I've absolutely hours. misunderstood that Literally as well. I have got an image in my head of people just sitting in an interview yeah. in a, in a yeah. in this police station. So it's actually from the point. So basically, it should if, be if it's it done properly. Yeah, from the point they get, say they were arrested, or they're or the or is it or they just asked to come in for questioning. Is it is there a formality there? So basically, if they're arrested, they have to have one. What if they're just asked? to voluntarily come in do they still need it if it's a voluntary interview yeah yes they're entitled to an appropriate adult in the same way now that's interesting because this is something that we've just been doing some work around within the last couple of months right um for the national crime agency um because during covid obviously more people have been interviewed in non-traditional settings or non-traditional ways yeah um so um, people being interviewed in their homes, for example, people being interviewed in in a voluntary setting in the police station, right. and the concern is there's actually um, a lot of safeguards. There's quite robust um, procedures, if you like, in police custody. So if if a detainee is brought into the custody setting, a suspect's brought into that custody environment, the custody sergeant deals with that all day every day there's risk assessments done there's checklists that they complete they know sort of what they're looking for in terms of welfare vulnerability where actually an officer in charge of a case who might be a sort of 24-7 cop might be a more serious crime could be a more senior officer but they're 
there's a concern. There's been questions asked about whether things might be missed mm. and actually where the good practices around the country, what's working well, are the assessments being done? So we've just yeah. been sort of looking a little bit into what, what's actually happening. What's happening? And yeah. what it seems like, what the picture looks like, is that actually there is a lot of really good practice going on up and down the country where where um, vun- where vulnerable people do need appropriate adults in those voluntary settings. It's being risk assessed and that actually they're getting Again. someone um, and liaison and diversion services will be contacted as well. But there seems to be some problems around data retrieval. The police forces all use different computer yep. systems um, and um, without going into each individual record for each individual detainee or each custody record, it's not like there's a flag where they can just retrieve, you know, like how many there's yep. been or yeah. how many had an appropriate adult. Same in social work practice, the, yeah, the common thing. Yeah, it was like <laughs> expecting that, it, you know, you use a system and it'll be the same across the country yeah. and it's not and people are missed. Yeah. And they're completely separate. And I don't think, I think practitioners know this, but I think the general public doesn't realise that there isn't actually one night, you know, big database that's connecting all of this information up, which would be helpful. But I know there's obviously issues around data protection, around that. When you were saying, Donna, about like these sort of vulnerable people, because I mean, you, you, you know, you said about the, the language is really interesting. Mm. It is. In fact, I remember you're, you've presented on this you about vulnerability, Sarah, as well, and talked yeah. about it, haven't you? So by, by the act what and the law, well, what does it say? Vulnerable people um, for PACE vulnerability, Police and Criminal Evidence Act vulnerability, um, what they're trying to identify is somebody who might struggle to be fully involved or engaged in the proceedings. So somebody who might have a difficulty expressing their version of a narrative of events, somebody who couldn't explain what's happened in a situation, somebody who might struggle to understand questions or struggle to understand procedures. So it can be related to mental health yeah it can be related to uh, learning disabilities or specific learning difficulties it can just actually be that when somebody presents at the desk and they're talking to the custody sergeant the custody sergeant suspects that they've got difficulty comprehending what's going on so there might be no diagnosis there might be no indicators or flags but the custody sergeant just has a concern that somebody isn't fully engaging in the procedures so would that include Someone who had um, imbibed some kind of substance, whether it's alcohol or something else, that affected their ability to understand what was happening. Then no, they would be they would be left until they sobered up. Okay, yeah. <laughs> until so they, they could come. <laughs> yeah. Just, so if it was something that they was clearly identified as very temporary because because of whatever reason, then yeah. they might just be left until they were then able right. to to communicate what. And, understand what and obviously there's support in a custody setting so yeah. um, liaison and diversion will have a mental health nurse on site yeah. and there's a custody nurse there for the sort of health needs so okay. if there's yeah. questions or concerns those professionals can be brought in and asked yeah. to, to comment so as well interesting yeah it is it is. Sorry. I feel like you were about to say I was say about something. to say something. Yeah. Sorry, so were you. Yeah, no, that's fine. So the interesting <laughs> thing for me, <laughs> the interesting thing for me, just to finish answering what you were asking before, um, the language around being an appropriate adult, I think, comes from dealing with children. Yeah. And I find it deeply uncomfortable right. yeah. when you're working with adults. Mm-hmm. And it honestly didn't occur to us because I, I was picking up this new scheme, 
you know, and I just got this old big training pack and had to turn mm-hmm. up and train these volunteers and we kind of were just finding our way through it together. So I very much was using what was given to me by the National Appropriate Adult Network that was based on the kind of legal definitions and I didn't really give it much thought, if I'm yeah, honest. Yeah. So I was more concerned with the practicalities of what does this role do and yeah. getting these people to actually go out and do the job properly so they're given proper support to the vulnerable people they were working with. And it wasn't until the first day I turned up at a police station Um, because I did do quite a lot of volunteering myself in the early days, partly because we didn't have very many volunteers. But also, I don't think you can support volunteers in a role that you're not doing yourself. Mm -hmm. But turning up at the police station and actually finding myself saying to a grown man, uh, hello, I'm Donna, I'm here to be your appropriate adult. And Mm. as the words fell out of my mouth, then you're starting to think, what actually am I saying to you by saying that? And what I felt like I was saying was you're not appropriate to act or speak for yourself. Yeah. I'm here to do that for you. And mm. I'm here to be the adult for you. And I just, it made me feel uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I kind of went away. And I mean, since then, and this is the way I train the volunteers, I wouldn't say I'm here to be your appropriate adult. Appropriate adult is the terminology that's yeah. used legally yeah. in the police station by the professionals. So I can't single-handedly change that. I can suggest it and bring it up. But my approach to that is when I work with somebody, I would say I'm from the appropriate adult scheme. Mm-hmm. So I'm not trying to yeah, sort yeah. of say so to somebody, I'm being yourself. your appropriate, I'm being appropriate and an adult for you. Yeah. But I just That's... found it uncomfortable. It was a bit jarring yeah. the first time. I... Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I think there's a lot of crossover with um, my kind of concerns about the use of the word vulnerable in social work practice as well just that that idea of it being quite paternalistic and um in social work it's often ascribed by virtue of someone's characteristics and yeah so they're inherently vulnerable in some way because mm-hmm. of something about them rather than that they might be in a vulnerable situation or at that moment something's happening but yeah so I the think f- that idea is I can relate to how you felt because I think I would have felt that same sense of I would agree absolutely with what you're saying about vulnerability there and again to me it's a conflict that unpacked out of this because I had not really considered the negative aspects of being Mm -hmm. called or labelled vulnerable now on the one hand you've got you know being vulnerable having a label of vulnerability attracts resource what can get finance what can get support Mm -hmm. and actually in those ways especially at the moment where it's kind of quite politically fashionable to to be concerned about vulnerability it seems to be something that's Mm -hmm. very much on the agenda at the minute so I think for somebody who might have some additional needs or support needs Mm -hmm. it can be potentially a useful label in that way the other side of it is actually it's very disempowering Um, and you've got to think then about what does that do to somebody's perception of themselves their citizenship their ability to act and advocate for themselves maybe somebody hasn't considered themselves to be vulnerable before and now they're turning up at the police station and we're we're labelling them as vulnerable and I think what that's actually compounding is the fact that somebody's just gone through a criminalisation process as well so you've gone through all of that being labelled as deviant being you know those processes in the police station and I just think it's an overall part of the disempowerment that happens anyway inside a custody suite yeah and custody suites you can imagine are naturally set up to be that way that they're disempowering for for citizens for what Mm -hmm. i think many would see as good reasons but 
I think the concern there is there shouldn't be unequally disempowering for somebody with a particular like, yeah. vulnerability. I know it's an uncomfortable phrase, it, but... It's hard, though, isn't it? Because, I mean, with that... I see that, like you're saying, there's a pragmatic approach here that it's about access to services and it's access to support that that actually you, you that person may very well need and that that is needed. Mm-hmm. So there's an element of it because I I feel like there's that constant conflict in practice between what you don't want to do is disempower. You don't want to actually add to somebody's. Um, difficulties or make things more challenging for them but on the other hand you've got a whole system behind you and the system needs something like a tag almost I mean I don't know if that's a good word to use but maybe because we're talking about some criminal aspects of things it's like it needs something to say okay actually that person needs that Mm -hmm. they need this and they need this in addition and that's the problem is that we're kind of left with you know actually but then that's not the norm that's not what's normal and that's how it feels isn't it it is but also the other side of it i think what you're doing as sarah's just said is you're locating the vulnerability very much with something different or deviant or difficult about that person yeah and it's a real it's a deficit approach to looking at a person isn't it and i think what it ignores then is some of the real um situational or structural issues that go on I mean situationally like I say everyone's disempowered inside a police station yes it's a very physically constraining environment you know the the noises the smells the the environment it's it's an uncomfortable place to be for anybody so situationally I think unless you're working in that environment and you know you're you're the police officer it is disempowering for anybody who goes through custody but I have to be quite honest about what I see coming through the custody suite in terms of who we work with and who we deal with and there's very much a gender element to it and there's very much a class-based element to it yeah and what we tend to get is lots and lots of young working class males Mm -hmm. and that then tells me there's some wider pattern going on yeah you know why is it those it's not a, a vulnerability or something inherent about the person there's something about a social pattern that's making certain people more likely to end up through whatever reason, having situations that are, are causing them to end up in that setting. Yeah, and that when you're saying that, I'm thinking back, child protection, which is what my background is, gender, female, class still the issue, and environment, the environment of actually having to go to child protection conferences at a, you know, a building that's set up for that was awful we used to have situations where I remember you know we used to talk quite negatively about what used to happen which was that the parents couldn't come through the main door they had to go in the back which meant they had to go up because of the building up a flight of stairs walk all the way around the top of the building all the way back down to get to the room and walk into a room with all the professionals sitting there yeah so it's like that similar thing isn't it of it's it's the, the way that we set it up yeah the architecture yeah. and the environment it's creating awful. that sort of disempowering so situation because going back to what you were saying um before donna about like the you know who who's allowed access to this like who the who gets access to appropriate adult it was making me think that almost just somebody that's utterly overwhelmed by being there could then could they potentially be identified by the custody sergeant as needing that support yeah. and that i think that's quite i actually think that's quite a good thing when i think about that because i think it, these are terrifying processes for people to experience so actually if you've got having some support that's potentially there for anybody 
who is overwhelmed and can't deal with it is actually that's good it could be i think the difficulty is as <laughs> the, the the definitions are so sort of fluffy and unclear yeah, yeah. you're very much leaving it down to someone's discretion yes, about how are. they view things yeah. mm-hmm. and you know without any evidence for this it's definitely a concern i would have um could there potentially be a likelihood that it might be um influenced by what the what level of case it is Mm-hmm. So something that's a case where it's minor volume crime, you know, shoplifting, petty low level offences that probably aren't going to go very far through the justice system mm-hmm. that actually maybe it doesn't matter so much then. Mm. And the concerns from the police officer point of view might be around evidence and co- mm-hmm. co- um, yeah. collecting and um, safeguarding the evidence almost, yeah. that safeguarding the evidence and not the person. Not the person yeah. um, and mm-hmm. you kind of have to wonder really when you're going out, and that's that's another conflict. It's been a very conflict-ridden role. Uh, you sort of go out there and you think, what is it I'm doing? Who am yeah. I here to help and support? Because if what I'm doing is enabling the police to actually collect evidence and information from a person mm-hmm. who has a vulnerability, then yes, that might be good for the police, it might be good for the victim. It might be good for the justice system. You're helping to get to the bottom of a situation and what's gone on yeah. by by enabling those procedures. But is that actually necessarily in the best interests of the person mm-hmm. that you're there to support? Mm-hmm. So I think these are conflicts that appropriate adults who yeah. go out and conduct the role, you know, you, you do wrestle a little bit with that, probably a little bit of all of those things. I don't like the language around safeguard either. Mm-hmm. I think the... It, the appropriate adult is described in most of the literature as a safeguard and as a legal safeguard and I think when you're dealing with adults safeguarding for me is something that you do when you're looking after children mm-hmm. and I think for adults maybe we need to be thinking about the terminology yeah. there I know this yeah. is an area you've worked in Leslie so yeah. I don't know if you'd have any suggestions about what we could call it I instead. think that's the problem I think you know as from a practice perspective you've got to have something that is is practically an easy thing to to understand so you've got like the tag of that I understand what I need to do for that you want to actually do the the right thing but it's actually really you need a practical thing you've got systems that you're trying to manage so I don't have the answer I really don't I think I think I raised that when Sarah was presenting on hers around vulnerability because it is about the fact that you know you kind of like yeah but what is the right thing because I mean I grapple with this about about sort of terminology I think it's 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 a eternal challenge that we need to be able to have the practicality of the access to what we're entitled to and the problem is there are barriers around that. So in order to get access to something, you have to have the right terminology, don't you? But you need people to understand what it is you that do. you're saying. Yeah. And when something's very entrenched, I mean, the language that we're talking about yeah. here has been, it's been in law since the early 1980s. Yeah. So everyone who's working yeah. in the field, it's whether they agree with or are comfortable with the language, it's what they understand and use on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. So it is but difficult it, to challenge, isn't it? It is, yeah. but I think, you know, the, the fact that it has been around for so long means it's so strongly connected to the, the values behind it and what we understand and mean by it too. Like you are saying about kind of labelling someone as vulnerable, <laughs> you're automatically starting from a deficit-based yeah. approach, aren't you? And then it's very difficult to recognise any strengths or, or promote mm. those or, or support the person. 
Yeah, the whole system the whole system is deficit because as yeah. soon as you get into the medical profession as well, it's all about dysfunction yeah, and problem. Yeah, because have access to any service, yeah. whether it's an appropriate adult yeah. or a social worker or a healthcare, you have to demonstrate that you've got you. There's, there's something, something wrong. Not, you know, <laughs> yeah. there's a deficit. There's yeah. something. It's difficult, isn't it? Um, it of... is because I was thinking about that with like the like you talk about the challenge in the language around it. One of the things I was interested in is how people in this volunteer or because social workers enough having my own experience as a social worker when I've encountered working with the police there's always a power dynamic there and and I've noticed as well through my own research that there's almost like a backing off by the social worker that the police somehow have the power it's like the same with the, the medical profession the doctor has it how have the how have you sort of worked with the volunteers around challenging that because that becomes even harder I think the position that they're in do they feel confident in challenging because their role is to challenge isn't it if if the interview's not fair yeah all if of they feel those the person needs a break yeah they can check the custody record they can ask for meals breaks has this person had their medication did they need some sleep all of those kind of welfare issues and concerns and if they felt like an interview was being you know unduly oppressive or was making a I mean interviews are they they are uncomfortable yeah. anybody who's being interviewed particularly if there's a serious crime will get upset and it's just it's a distressing difficult thing but it's is it is that within the normal realms of how uncomfortable it would be or is it getting to where it's unduly oppressive mm-hmm. in which case you would expect the appropriate adult to kind of step in and say look we need to take we a break this has gone too far can we take some time out this person needs to have a drink or a rest or whatever whatever it is that you want to ask for how do that how do they have they talked about how they felt about challenging you know how confident they feel about doing that i think what we do um when we do the training they, they get three full initial days of training and there's top-up training as you know anything new comes out in law or procedure and just to kind of update them regularly mm-hmm. um and they do portfolios and qualifications as, as part of their volunteering so Part of what we do was actually have them working inside the police station. It's been more difficult during COVID, mm. but previous iterations of the training we've actually done it on site inside the police station. So they're spending time working with the officers and actually getting down into the custody suite so they actually feel comfortable there and comfortable in the environment. Mm. And actually part of the training is that this is your this is your role and this is your expectation. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, national um, researchers found that appropriate adults generally can sometimes not step in when they should in interviews. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So there's research that's being done by one of our psychologists at Sunderland, Laura mm-hmm. Faruja. She's had some recent work that she's published where she's actually analysed scripts of interviews to look at whether the appropriate adults are, are intervening right. when they should. I mean, they, they weren't the particular ones from our scheme. No. But I think just trying to kind of identify that there is an academic base around the fact that this is something appropriate adults do find to be difficult um, mm-hmm. generally. So I think our appropriate adults report back that they intervene when they should. The police... You'll see in the paper, mm-hmm. if you look at the paper, yeah. they report that actually they feel like that somebody would raise a concern or in- intervene when they when they should. Yeah. Um, but it's it's really difficult to know mm-hmm. without being in every single interview whether yeah. that's actually the case. And as I said earlier, it's not just about the interview. It's all those other things. Mm-hmm. So um, it, are you checking the custody record? 
Are you checking whether somebody's had meals and medication? Are you checking whether friends and relatives know where they are? Just general welfare checks about how are you feeling? How are you coping? Mm -hmm. Do you understand what the police think you've done? Do you know do, mm -hmm. you, do you know why you're here? So, so just in terms of the practicalities of how that works, when you say about intervening in the interview, you're talking specifically about around welfare issues because they're not there in any other capacity. So they would intervene if they felt it had gone on too long or the person looked like they needed a break. Is that the kind of... Yeah, I mean, I did once quite upset a custody sergeant by stopping my participation in an interview because I thought the person was having a psychotic episode during the interview. Right. And right. what I could see was that he he didn't look to me as though he could engage in what was going on. Mm -hmm. And the officer in charge of the case in that instance wanted to carry on. Mm -hmm. And what I said was, and this is your right as an appropriate adult, if you want to carry on, I'm not willing to be part of that proceeding. So I'm going to leave. Mm -hmm. If you can find another appropriate adult who's willing to sit through this... I don't think it's okay. I don't think it's acceptable. So I'm choosing to just withdraw myself from the situation. Mm -hmm. I can't stop the interview. I right. can raise a concern. I can talk right. to the custody okay. sergeant or explain why I'm, um, what I think should be happening. Yeah. But in that case, and that was the way that I exercised the bit of power that I do know I have, mm -hmm. is that they won't continue without the appropriate adult there. So the, I couldn't tell them to stop and make them stop but me right. removing myself from the situation had the same impact. And that was actually a really interesting case. Um, what had happened was the, the person had a history of psychosis and lived with psychosis on a day-to-day -day basis, and that was their normal mental way of being. And yeah. the custody sergeant had identified, obviously, that there was a need for an appropriate adult, there was a mental health condition, the mental health nurse had seen the person. And there had been a whole discussion around fitness to interview. And um, what was decided was that the person lived with that psychosis on a day-to-day -day basis. So it was normal for them. Right. And that even within that psychosis, that they knew the difference between right and wrong. So right. that was decisions other professionals okay. were making around me. And on, I, I had to make my own personal judgment yeah. that that wasn't something I was comfortable to continue with. Mm-hmm. Do you think then that, like, so I remember when I was reading your article and I was like, because I was obviously with my social work background, I'm interested in the kind of similarities around that, but also around the fact that um, I hadn't quite registered that, that it was a role that social workers did because my background's children rather than adults. Um, you know how one of the things that I, mean, I think we've discussed it before, Donna, is that the thing with a volunteering service is it's it's identifying that there's a gap. Mm -hmm. So there's a gap, there's something not being done. But it's almost like in doing that and then doing it so effectively, is there then the concern that they don't recognise, actually, this should be a, a paid thing. This mm -hmm. is actually so important that it's, it should be paid. I mean, it's like a patchwork up and down the country. Each yeah. region is done differently. Um that, I mean, there is a general acknowledgement from the Home Office now that there should be commissioning agreements between local authorities that might involve the police and might involve the police and crime commissioners. But the setups in each area are different. Um, and I think the other thing is you've got organisations that don't neatly overlap. Mm -hmm. So, for example, Liaison and Diversion in our region covers Cumbria as well, mm -hmm. where the police are not the Northumbria region, so the boundaries for the different services aren't quite the same. Right. We're covering six different local authority areas and they actually all have different 
ways of operating, different hours. So in one area, they'll provide appropriate adults for young people during the night. In another area, they make them wait until 8 o'clock in the morning before they send mm-hmm. someone out. So they, right. even within a local area, it can be a real patchwork. So up and down the country, the services are not the same. I mean, for me personally, I think that all appropriate adults should be paid should be trained professionals because I think there's there's a massive number of um, benefits to using volunteers. We've got some fantastic volunteers on the scheme but you're relying on their goodwill to come along Yeah. and you know is that the odd time when you actually can't get somebody mm-hmm. um, is it something that actually should be a professional service we do train our volunteers um, not yes. the level that somebody who's done a full social work qualification mm-hmm. would have an understanding or somebody who's done a full qualification in speech language and communication needs. Yes. It's a few days of training around pace and around a role and mm-hmm. then what they sort of learn on the job. But the other side of that is anybody over the age of 18 can be an appropriate adult. So we're sort of in this little gap in between because compared to pulling someone in off the street, getting someone from your local community centre, mm-hmm. getting someone from the local church, which which happens and was actually happening in our area before the scheme was set up, using yeah. friends, family, you know, just drawing in who you can get. Those people aren't trained, they aren't qualified and they're less likely to intervene than somebody who's gone through the training. Yeah, yeah. It's that's really interesting what you're saying there because actually for me there's some parallels between the appropriate adult service and advocacy services which are used quite widely in health and social mm-hmm. care. So, you know, we have for example IMCAs, the independent mental capacity advocates, um, Care Act advocates, you know, there's a statutory obligation for them to be involved in certain processes with social workers when when the requirements for them to be involved are met and it sounds like that's the same because there's a legal requirement to involve an appropriate adult but it just seems to me that it would be so unthinkable to have that statutory requirement and yet be reliant on volunteers to fulfill Mm -hmm. it Um, advocates are trained professionals um, and they're paid you know by their advocacy service to do that job the local authority commissions those services so um, uh, you know it sounds like the scheme is absolutely brilliant but you know in terms of sustainability and yeah like you say there's just relying on volunteers to fulfill what seems to be well we're all lucky enough to be funded by the police and crime commissioner for northumbria and that doesn't happen in every region okay and that covers the running costs of the scheme and it covers the expenses for the volunteers right so in terms of that level Mm -hmm. of sustainability i think we're we're quite comfortable with that obviously our volunteers are students though yeah <laughs> so you've got this constant turnover of they hit that year where they're writing their dissertation and they don't have time to do it anymore and yeah. um, we don't tend to take the very new students who've just came into the university mm-hmm. we want to know that they're professional that we can rely on them to you know to attend to that they've got some knowledge in either mm-hmm. criminology or health and social care um that they can bring to the role yeah. So we're looking for that level of professionalism, um, but you know they graduate and they move on. Yeah. So we've got that so constant turnover. We're constantly getting volunteers up to a very, very high standard, yeah. which is great, and they're going on and getting you know professional jobs, and it's helping them in those ways. But we're, we've got that constant turnover where we're training, and you know mm-hmm. the cycle that goes on, and you are relying on a volunteer to pick the phone up, potentially, you know, three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, that's difficult. Do you think the police have a good understanding of the role of the appropriate adult and when and how they should intervene or challenge in these custody suites? 
Uh, yes, I do. But I mean, I've only seen what happens in the Northumbria region. Okay. I actually think the Northumbria police, when I, when I look at what they do and how they work, they're a really professional service. And I think the custody staff in particular that I've worked with and that I've seen, they're really custodians in the kind of traditional sense of what you'd see from a custodian like they're they're there to look after the person Mm -hmm. um and there's something really interesting because obviously i've got this criminology background in the different roles and the culture and the positions that the police have in terms of what they're interested in and what they're doing and in the northumbria region the custody sergeants tend to be very mature police officers usually who've gone through a range of other roles tending to be towards retirement um, and they're in their last few years, so they're very experienced, very knowledgeable. And if you speak to any of them, which we have, we've conducted mm-hmm. a few pieces of research, they will tell you that what they're concerned about is that nobody's going to die in the custody suite. Every single one you speak to will tell you that first. And then their concerns are around health and well-being. They really don't have a concern about whether somebody has or hasn't committed an offence. Mm-hmm. That's a concern for the detective, the officer in charge of the case. So other people can worry about that as part of their role. Okay. And what they're very concerned about is, is that person safe? Have they got what they need? Mm-hmm. You know, do we need yeah. to get a, a medical professional? Do we need to get an appropriate adult? And actually, uh, you know, I've seen somebody be brought in... To, um, police custody and the the custody sergeants getting them a cup of tea and a book to read and I was me me, like naively kind of coming in and saying that for the first time thinking that's not really what I had expected to see here Um, and having it explained Mm -hmm. to me well actually if that person's safe and comfortable in the environment they're in that actually they're easier to contain in what's a a difficult environment so I'm not saying it's like some fluffy lovely the police are looking (laughs) after these people which I mean they they do look after them they're looking after them for a purpose Mm -hmm. and the purpose is that containment and control in a safe environment that they're they're trying to keep calm and and risk assessed but it's very interesting you kind of go in and you see that people have their different concerns and their different roles and I just think the appropriate adult's part of that so when I go in as an appropriate adult I'm not concerned whether somebody has or has not committed an offence or what they might have done, or any other issues except from their welfare, their understanding, their ability to engage in the proceedings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Um, that's really important. Just what you were saying there about the comfort, you know, the simple acts that actually you can do to make somebody feel more comfortable because the environment and the process isn't pleasant, and so there's nothing you can do. that That's the way it is. So, But what you can do about that is to try and balance that because when you were saying that done it's made me think about that the, the sort of um, child protection role is quite challenging because it actually covers both of that you've got to be concerned about their welfare but you've also got to be the investigator mm-hmm. you're doing all of that you're the detective conflict and you're the custody sergeant yeah. kind of thing and it is a conflicted role so there's like when you kind of go down into the look this is not safe this is not right you're kind of trying to find out what's going on but on the other hand you've also got to be concerned about their welfare Mm -hmm. all at the same time and it's quite interesting here you describe those things which I've seen on the television but I've not seen them in person yeah you know it's really it's I think the move and this is austerity related as well we've got these massive big custody hubs now where people used to go to their small local police stations and it's obviously just much more cost effective to bring people into these 
you know, we're, we're running three in Northumbria at the moment for the whole Northumbria Police Force region, mm. which is actually the sixth biggest in the country, you mm. know, so the number of people that they're dealing with. And the custody suites, if you go in there, um, I was quite surprised the first time I walked into one after, you know, my last experience being when you get yourself into a little bit of trouble when you're a teenager and you're taken through those local police stations to actually turn up at one of these now massive custody hubs. And my experience of it was it's some, more something like walking through an, an airport lounge mm. or a or right. a hotel. You know, yeah. it's that, that kind of different yeah. environment. Yeah. So um, you mentioned before that in some areas, um, social workers might be called upon to do the appropriate adult role. Um, so what would be the difference, do you think, whether it was a social worker or a volunteer, or is the role exactly the same? I think the role is the same. Mm-hmm. I think the level of support that a person could give might be different. Mm-hmm. I think, to be honest, if somebody's a social worker and they already know and are working with that person, they're going to understand the person's personality, Mm -hmm. their needs, the context, their normal communication, any other issues they might, you know, a full case file of any other issues they might have going on in their life instead of it just being that one snapshot of that distressed time Mm -hmm. so they might be able to provide a bit more of an all-round care and probably are in a better position to make any other referrals or other support that's Mm -hmm. needed Mm -hmm. so I mean for me ideally my ideal case scenario would be that this would be conducted by social workers Mm -hmm. and it would be consistent in every region up and down the country Mm -hmm. and I think the scheme that we have would would do the would do a good job it's a good scheme it seems to be running really well but we're filling a gap that probably shouldn't be there so you're kind yeah. of being quite pragmatic about it, which is we do the best we can with, with where we are and what we have, but ultimately the best thing would be get the professionals in, recognise it as something. I'm sitting here think, listening to you thinking, I think everybody should have it. I think everyone should have an advocacy because systems, regardless of what they are, are confusing to mm. people who are not actively engaging with them all the time well this is an interesting debate because there's been research that suggested this so some some academic opinion says that everybody's vulnerable in the custody suite yeah so actually you could take that to its logical conclusion and say well should everybody have an appropriate adult then Mm-hmm. For me, I don't agree with that position. <laughs> there are there are academics who do, because for me, that's why everybody's entitled to free and independent legal advice. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting there is that a lot of people don't actually take up the free and independent legal advice. Right. Um, it's actually running it somewhere. It's estimated between 40 and 60% actually take up the legal advice. And for different reasons, people think it will make them look guilty. Yeah. They think it's going to slow down the proceedings. Um, there's been research about you know police actually influencing people and mm-hmm. and saying oh you don't really need one you know or yeah. making people feel particularly involuntary interviews it might just feel like a friendly chat so you don't really need someone there people will not get free and independent legal advice because they've done it they'll think well I've de- I've done it I'm guilty so there's no right. point in getting legal advice mm-hmm. they'll get legal advice because they ha- they'll not get the legal advice because they haven't done it. Yep. They'll think, well, I haven't done anything wrong, so I don't, I don't need, need the legal it. advice. Yeah. So conversely, so the support being there is yeah. one thing. It's no use if people don't know what the support is yeah. or how to access it or feel like it's going to stigmatise them. Yeah. And one of the key concerns that people have, and this is quite often why people don't actually ask for appropriate adults, is that they think it's going to slow things down. And actually it will slow things down, but maybe as if people 
if it means things are being done properly, is yeah. is it is it a bad thing that it's yeah. being done a bit more slowly yeah. and systematically yeah. and thoroughly? So now I've got an image of now we need the solicitors based at the station. We're going to have advocates <laughs> based. I yeah. mean, basically, if it was all to work nicely and people could understand the system and, and what they're entitled to and how it appears, things would work a lot better, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. But across the board, that's not what happens. At yeah, all. all of these systems are too complicated they are. to wrap your head around. And in regards to that, because you said, obviously, people have that choice about the, the free and... Um, legal advice but when it comes to an appropriate adult um do they have to have given their consent for that person to be there no oh that's they interesting don't actually get a choice so about the... whether that person's there or not oh okay so they it's the police oh, that identify the, police, the need yeah the and then that happens regardless and of that's why the scheme feels. has to be independent because mm. you can't have the police just choosing who comes in as the, as the oh, appropriate we'll adult so, yeah okay so what mm-hmm. what you need to do is for our scheme we we provide the rotors so we do the selection mm-hmm. of who the volunteers are and then we provide to the police a list of who's on shift at any given time so and they're not able just to just cherry some... pick which appropriate adults interesting yeah, mm. so that that must make it quite challenging for appropriate adults if they are working with someone who has not given consent and perhaps doesn't want them there for some reason. Is that a situation that they encounter ever? Yes, I've encountered that. Yeah, um, it was a a young man who had a learning disability and didn't see himself as vulnerable mm-hmm. and just didn't want me there. And it was actually yeah. in the end, it was his solicitor who talked him around to carrying on because he was refusing to be interviewed with me in the room. Right. And the solicitor mm-hmm. wanted him to go through just doing a straightforward, what they call a no comment interview, right. to get it kind of get to get the procedures moving. Mm-hmm. And he just said, "Look, you're just delaying it. She's not going to make any difference. She's just sitting there. We need to just sort of crack on with this." And I tried to speak to him and tried to engage with him, and he just was he didn't want to talk to me and didn't want me there yeah, because he didn't want to be seen as vulnerable. You say is that is that? Yeah, and I think he he didn't want to be seen as vulnerable. He didn't want, he thought that adding this extra layer of another professional in was actually going to slow things down. Right. Yeah. Um, some people have not wanted to engage with me because they've thought I was a social worker, which was an interesting right. <laughs> discussion. I think, yeah. um, I think sometimes people can see the social worker in the same way that they see the police, yeah. where it's an official, it might be somebody who could make interventions in their life or in their family. Um, and they see the social worker mm-hmm. in that powerful position. Yeah. So there is, there is, you know, I'm saying for me, I think a social worker, they're professionals, they're trained, I work with social workers in a professional way, but that's not necessarily always the perception from a service user of who the social worker is or what they do. Um, one of the interesting things that came out in the early evaluations is that what was really welcomed by the detainees is that our students being volunteers... The turn up dressed like students and not yeah. dressed like professionals. Yeah. Okay. So them just being in their jeans and a hoodie and looking like a kind of everyday off the person rather than being in that professional, yeah. you know, yeah. sort of dress that they felt more comfortable because you go into a custody suite and the detainees are supporting, they're wearing a grey sweatsuit in, yep. in the Northumbria region that would have been given to them usually by, by the police officer when they go in. Yeah. It's just so interesting, isn't it? Because then when you were saying about why that young person might not have wanted you then, I'm just thinking, well, you're also a stranger to them. You're another person that's been added. 
you know, and if somebody, you know, on the one hand, I've got this idea of, oh, let's have loads of, basically, we're talking advocacy, really, aren't we? That's what this is, having advocates everywhere. But then on the other hand, if someone doesn't want it, it should be their right to to decline yeah. that and yeah. to not have you there. But then you're saying it's actually the police's. Yeah. It's, oh, it's, well, the other thing is, yeah. an appropriate adult's got the right to insist on a free and independent legal advisor being called. Yeah. So and what, without the person agreeing to without that the person either. agreeing to it, so it's kind of sets off a chain really. Once they've been identified as as yes. vulnerable, with my mm, air quotes yeah. here, um, that they then actually get potentially have a number of decisions taken away from them because well, of that. The, you can't make them actually see the free and independent legal advisor. Okay. So what the the agreement we've got for our scheme in in our region is that when the police are calling out our volunteers, that they will call a solicitor. Um, and the reason that I set it up in that way is because somebody who is in custody when you turn up as the appropriate adult, you'll arrive and they'll start going, oh, I've done this and I've done this. And what do you think's going to happen to us? Mm-hmm. And I didn't want our student volunteers to be in that position where they slid into giving advice up that they don't know about or wasn't appropriate yeah. or actually even have those discussions. I don't mm-hmm. talk to people about what they've done. Yeah. Um, I'll I'll ask them if they understand what the police think they've done do you understand what you're charged with? Yeah. But no discussion at all around what they might or might not have done. Um, so we'd, we'd also really like to know um, how you think local authorities feel about um, or think about this service. And also if you've got any, I know your CAFS paper that this conversation was sort of loosely based on looks at the perspectives of police officers and of the volunteers that what kind of understanding you've got about how appropriate adults feel about the scheme not not appropriate adults sorry <laughs> the adults in custody <laughs> who are provided with an appropriate adult how they feel about the scheme or, or kind of their access to it and the support that they receive I think on the whole the police the local authorities the volunteers are all benefiting from the scheme I think mm-hmm. it's it's running well I mean mm-hmm. there's always going to be issues when you're running something there's, there's times when you can't staff a rota because you're short staffed or you know, there's there's difficulties and we've talked through some of those today, but I think on the whole it's been very much welcomed by the local authorities. I think the local authorities would be providing this service themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they were quite frustrated that they just didn't have the resource to do it. You know, and yeah. you, you would have people who, you might have one person on shift for a whole region and when somebody's already out giving support to one person and there's a call somewhere else, I think for a professional working with people with any kind of needs, that's that's really quite upsetting that you can't get round and provide yeah. all the support. Yeah. So I think actually it's been a crucial service where there's been a gap. So I think it has been broadly welcomed across the region. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So did you, because you didn't include the... the you know the vulnerable adults themselves in in the evaluation do you plan on doing any research yes an ah. interesting question is an interesting question because it's one of the things that's came out nationally yeah. we've done a, a project myself um wendy pod yeah. steve mcdonald and Faye cosgrove where we've actually looked at participation right. up and down the country by doing a survey with the schemes who are in operation and ask them what they do and what we've found is they're not involving service users in the provision mm-hmm. they're not involving service users in the training they're not involving service users in the evaluation or right. the running of the schemes and i think anybody who's familiar with disability studies 
would be familiar with the principle of you know nothing nothing about us without us and that doesn't seem to apply when you're in a criminal justice setting for some reason so I would be a very strong advocate for that position and actually think that people do need to have that that level of service user participation our police and crime commissioner for the Northumbria region is very keen for that to happen the university are very keen to support it but obviously we need to be very careful about the ethics around you know, researching people who are already vulnerable and in a in a, a difficult setting mm-hmm. at a stressful time. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? You know, and do people want to be followed up outside? You've got issues around confidentiality, custody records, so we need to find a way to do that. So what we're actually doing now is we're setting up a, a research project where the team and the, the scheme are going to put in place a um, almost like an action research project where we're going to plan some um, means of working with service users and conduct evaluations of how they work and and see if we can embed something because what the research found was the practitioners up and down the country do want to involve their service users they don't know how to do it right. they haven't got the resources mm-hmm. they don't understand it they haven't got the time they haven't got the money but there is a really deep desire among people providing these services to get the service users involved at all levels yeah. so actually you know that's positive for the future but we need to start thinking then about how we do that and I think we're in a privileged position because we're running the scheme from inside the university you yeah. know so it does give us that ethical problem of hoops to jump through but also it means we've got a team of people who are professional researchers yes we're working with a team where we've actually got active researchers who are social workers that we'll work with as well mm-hmm. we've got that knowledge around participation so the plan is that over the next few years we'll be looking to build um a toolkit that we can share with the other schemes but we need to set something up in our own region we can't advocate for it elsewhere yeah. when we're yeah. not actually doing it yeah. ourselves that sounds an absolutely fantastic yeah, way to develop the service. Really good. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Is there anything else that you want to add? Or um, do you think there's anything that you've sort of spoken about or done with this work that would be particularly useful for social workers to learn from? Um, I think just the value of the volunteers and the value for mm. the volunteers. Mm-hmm. Um there was a lot of resistance when I first started the scheme up and particularly from social workers. I was quite surprised at first on social media to have people um, telling me I was taking jobs away from social workers. I'm kind of stepping in and volunteering Mm -hmm. myself and working on top of a full-time job volunteering through the night and things like that so to get the kind of reaction where it was like a how dare you step into this role you're taking jobs away from Mm -hmm. people I was actually quite shocked that I had got that response Mm -hmm. um my position is you know as I've said I don't want to be taking roles away from somebody that would be done in a professional way um but the other side of it actually is that we're doing the best we can to fill a gap that is there. I yeah. didn't create the gap, the gap was no. there. Yeah. And the um the volunteers that we've got, they're they're doing a really good job. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the service is valued and I, I yeah. think it's it's been a, a crucial step. Well it's kind <laughs> of like you're in a it's a it's a no win situation. I mean, you know, you've got it, it if you don't do it, it's not happening. Mm-hmm. 
So what do you do? Do you stand back and not do something? Of course you're going to do yeah. something. Oh, well, I wasn't stepping into something where I was taking something no, away. No, it, it wasn't happening. That was yeah. nothing the way there. That it needed to happen. Yeah, there was nothing filled, there at all. You filled it with that position. And I think the thing is, the problem is that, you know, the, the funding... You know, it's not a direct taking a job away from a social worker, is it? Because it's really about the fact that all of the the resources in welfare are completely under-resourced and we've got a problem and we're having this crisis of, so what do you do? Do you not do it? I mean, that's the same with food banks. Do you not provide a food bank when people are actually have no food in the house and Mm -hmm. making decisions about, well, do I feed, you know, if I feed the kids, I can't eat do I heat or, or is it heating or food? Do I, you know, what do I prioritise? And it is a real problem because actually you can't ignore the immediate need that's there. It's like you fill it and then you find a way to almost have the battle afterwards to then try and get the system changed. That's kind of how I think. Well, the breach is filled, of, isn't it? Yeah. The, the gap's filled so nobody's going to come along and resource it or look, look at trying mm-hmm. to you know, fill that gap or staff it or because there isn't a gap there anymore now. That's why we have to do something separately, isn't it? To try and draw attention to the fact that this is a really, through the research, that's where I think research can be important. We can highlight that actually there is a real need for this to be sort of um, financed and professionally funded and have professionals working in those roles and not necessarily social workers because you you said some you know of the conflict in the role when I was saying well the social worker is about welfare but is also about the investigation and the perception of social workers in society can be negative so you want somebody in that role that's going to be what that person needs not what the profession needs but what the individual themselves need Anyway, I thought I'd just finish on that point for you, Donna. You know, <laughs> just. <laughs> oh, but it's but this has been really interesting. I've really enjoyed listening and and talking and asking questions, and it's given us some really good things to think about, hasn't it? Definitely. Thank you so much. Thank Donna, you for coming, you. Donna. Yes, we really appreciate it. You have been listening to the Portal Podcast, linking research and practice for social work, with me, Dr. Sarah Lombe, and Dr. Leslie Deacon. And this was funded by the University of Sunderland, edited by Paper Ghosts, and our theme music is called Together We're Stronger by All Music 7. And don't forget that you can find full transcripts of today's podcast and links and extra information in our show notes. So anything you want to follow up from what you've heard today, um, check out there and you should find some useful extra resources. See you all next time. Bye. Bye.